Okay, so fellas, uh, when can we re-record this without the benefit of Adam being drunk at my bar and ending on AIDS curveball? I'm sure Colton already told you, but don't take anything we say very seriously. And just to make sure, I can be not really drunk but fairly fairly buzzed for this oh absolutely absolutely we Uh, we call this our irreverent industry podcast which (laughs) is basically an excuse to make bad dick jokes occasionally and drop the f-bomb you can be filthy (laughs) why why don't we like raise the bar a little make some good dick jokes whoa that's well because the problem is if you what we're about here (laughs) that's not what we're about we don't want to compromise our values ryan (laughs) well who am i to judge uh yeah yeah leave me out of this then (laughs) Uh, all right, so yeah, this is the Still Talking Podcast with Colton Zeno and myself, Brian. Today, we actually have a real guest, someone who knows distilling, someone who knows gin, one of our friends and one of the people we look up to. Uh, we pretty much talk about you at least once a podcast because we are kind of addicted to your gin. Ryan, this so, is- I don't qualify as a real guest or a qualified distiller, do I? No, we're setting the bar pretty high again. Well, I mean, no, no. by comparison of the host, Sure. You've right. thrown the right. ball away. He's top Gun. Aria's Top Gun Gin. That is money right there. That is Top Gun. It's awesome. This is my friend from across the street. Bonus uh, guest. We... He's got a high man. So yeah. I'm Adam. This is Taryn in the background. There's three people present. Here. Nice. <laughs> Do we have to pay extra for that? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I'll bill you back I like later. The, I like you're like a prize fighter with a hype crew. Yeah. Right, he really does have a hype crew. This is fantastic. If you're not wearing a robe right now, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed. Adam's patting my forehead dry as we speak. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Sankey, Aria Jin. Did I say your last name right? I've known you for like oh, 10 no, years. It does, and you've slaughtered it once again. It's chonky. Rhymes with donkey. Come I, on, I, you should know. I can't. No, I don't agree. I'm going to keep calling you Sankey. Oh, man. Sankey's like the decaf coffee from the 80s, isn't it? Or No way, that's Sankey. So for, no. so for listener who no. doesn't know, Ryan, you are co-owner uh, and founder of Aria Gin with Eric Martin. <laughs> so tell us, give us the elevator pitch on what it is, why you started it, and why your gin is so goddamn delicious. We made gin because we're too dumb to do anything else. Uh, ultimately, uh, when you got drinking problems as bad as Eric and I, you got to write it off somehow, and uh, uh, gin was fairly easy. Um, next. Right, I do have like two legitimate <laughs> questions, and then we can get back to the all-important dick jokes. Uh, yeah, no, well, there's a serious? couple like pretend serious Fine. questions. The Fine. one that I know Zeno had, and I'm just going to throw it out for him because I don't like it when Zeno talks because then I can't hear me. Uh, and that's essentially, again, we talk about why gin, but you started contract distilling gin. You specifically started your own uh, distillery over the course of that process to make more gin. You fashioned your still exactly as the contract still was so that you wouldn't change your flavor profile at all. You'd be consistent with your flagship. Sincerely, why was it gin, the heart and soul of what you wanted to start? So contract distilling is not the term I like to use because when I think of that, I think of paying somebody to execute my recipe and then pick it up at their dock. This is what I want produced. Here's X amount of money. Let me get that for you. Uh, what we actually did with Bull Run was a very special and different relationship. Bull Run have been friends of ours for a long, long time, uh, going all the way back to our Artists and Spirits days. Registered trademark of uh, Artists and Spirits. No association story, with Artists and Spirit magazine. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're lucky we didn't see you. Still waiting for that um, shoe to drop. <laughs> but uh, Lee and I were friends long, long before uh, he started Bull Run or we started uh, Martin Ryan. And what he gave us the opportunity to do was go in and produce our spirit at his distillery. So I walked in there, I measured all of the ingredients, I filled the still, I fired the still, I was there for distillation, right. I swept the floor afterwards, I mopped up the puddles left over. Uh, it wasn't a contract distillation and I'm paying someone to make my product for me. I I basically rented their equipment uh, on production days and I did everything start to finish. And that was really important for us because we didn't want to create a brand, we wanted to make our own product. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just how we how felt. How long did you do and that? That was really important for us. Almost three years. And and for us, the idea was that we would do that for about two or three years. And I think that feeling was mutual with Bull Run. Bull Run thought you guys can be here for two or three years, right. but eventually you are going to have to build your own space. It's not. It wasn't meant to be a permanent relationship in either of our eyes. And I think that's the important thing. Um, 
what we really needed to do was not be under pressure to rush a product to market. And I think that's part of what makes Aria so good is that we didn't rush it to right. market because we had to start paying bills and amortizing loans. What we had the opportunity with Bull Run to do was make sure that the product was exactly what we wanted it to be, uh, and, and we, we, we perfected it, at least in our eyes, before we brought it to market. And not having to start paying bills was crucial to that part of the process. Uh, we did that for about three years, and uh, it wasn't until I lost my job because of my restaurant closing uh, here in the neighborhood that I was a bartender bar manager at Wildwood here in Portland. And when Wildwood closed after nearly 20 years, I didn't know what my next step was going to be. And I found the location that would become our distillery. I knew we were kind of not ready to leave the nest, so to speak. But we also knew that the trajectory we were on, it was going to happen very soon. And so we'd rather be ahead of the curve on that. And, and when I say really soon, there's a point where the cost of production per unit is really advantageous early on. And it becomes very disadvantageous once you hit a certain volume because it would right. be cheaper to have you know, fixed costs and reduce your variable costs. And we knew that we weren't there yet, but we knew that was going to happen soon. So we were proactive. I found a location that I thought would be perfect. It's a location we're in now. And, and I have to say, Brian, I don't believe you've been here yet, have you? I have. I was there when you guys were first building it out. Yeah, that's embarrassing because we've been here for three years. We've run this place into the ground uh, with gin production, and you still haven't been back as we're operational. Agreed. That is embarrassing. Come on. How far away is, how far away is Spokane? It's not that yeah, far. I've been there, and I live in Nashville. I, I did ask Colton to come here. Thank you for coming by, Colton. It was a pleasure seeing you. I wish we would have had a little more time together in Portland. Uh, but come on now, Brian. You, you, you write a magazine about distilled spirits. You still haven't been back by here while we're that's, operating. That's because you have to seduce me. All right, so we've seen over the last couple of years, and I've heard a lot of stories about how Portland has changed in term in terms of its welcoming nature towards Ryan, distilleries. Do you want to talk about that at all? I don't want to get you in trouble too if you're worried about uh, Portland bureaucracy coming back at you. Yeah. No, they, they weren't kind to us. Uh, they were even less kind to other distilleries, and I'm not going to name names, but uh, one of. Uh, a very crucial distillery uh, had so many problems that they actually left town. Can you give us some details uh, other, on what's happened? Like, you don't have to name names, but what is Portland doing and how? I mean, it used to be fairly welcoming to distilleries. Distillery Row was booming. No, it, what happened? What, what I ran into uh, myself was a lot of people that didn't understand what they were talking about, didn't understand what they were doing or how to regulate our industry. And making assumptions and not being very open to listening to what we have to do or what we're trying to do. There hasn't been consistency in how they've dealt with distilleries. And I'm not surprised if that's something that's really happening in a lot of towns. At one point, they told a distillery that was just opening up just before us, bear with us. This is kind of new to us, which there's 15 distilleries in Portland. They've been distilling here for 30 years, uh, if you factor in Clear Creek's um, original distillery there's no excuse for not understanding how to regulate this business and telling every single person you've got different things that you have different hoops you have to jump through basically making these demands that we do something this way or that way without any consideration for the fact that okay this is going to take an extra month this is this is this is going to take an extra ten thousand dollars we're not we're not farting out rainbows and and, and, and bitcoins. We we are a small company that has literally cashed out our life savings and maxed out our credit cards and borrowed everything our parents could give us to get this thing started. And we were literally at the point where we we're out of money. If this if this BS went on for one more month, we would have had to throw in the towel before we could unlock our doors. I, I had to fight I had to fight six different agencies and I got my permitting fees cut in half. But it was it was one of the most stressful times of my life because I didn't have the money for this. We were we we'd already bled out. At that point, it was like every every nickel was was worth chasing down the street. Yeah. So Ryan, did you did you run into that same problem on the state and federal level, or was that purely on the actual local city level? The federal level was really interesting because we've done this twice now. We're so stupid that we ran our first distillery into the ground. Uh, but when we did that. Uh, we actually uh, had an inspector that came out, and he was um, pretty much locally revered. Um, TTB level, Alvin Jones. Uh, this guy was this little old black <laughs> Jewish man, like maybe like five feet tall, Sammy Davis Jr. style. This guy was so fucking cool. 
and and it was actually it was actually absolutely awesome. He came in, our first distiller. We got our federal license in basically a shed, a dilapidated, dusty. This is the kind of shed that if if both people standing in it farted at the same time, a wall would probably fall off. Anytime the sun was up, you could see daylight through the walls. And he he came out and inspected. And at one point, he starts kicking a hole in a wall that's big enough for an adult raccoon to just roll through. And he's kicking this wall. I turn to Eric and go, fuck, dude, we're done. I, I, the look on my face was, oh, we're done. And he kicks it a few more times and goes, I don't see any problems here. And we sit down for a cup of coffee with this guy and he was kind of legendary around here because he was the one he was the one inspector everyone dealt with and he was such a character but he was a good soul he was a good human being i hope he's still around i know he retired and somehow he approved the space that we were in which was literally the equivalent of a two-car garage but made out of hopes and dreams and 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 about a quarter of the actual existing wood that it should have been made out of and he approved it so the federal government had apparently been way less resourced in terms of inspectors in the last few years. This one we did uh, all online. Uh, Eric is the one that handles all of that. Eric did a phenomenal job getting us through. He's actually worked with Freeland Spirits and several other distilleries about getting their licenses through. Anybody listening looking for a license, Eric Martin uh, does uh, push through COLA and uh, DSP applications very quickly and efficiently and uh, very cheaply. Okay, shameless plug over. Uh, no, Eric got us licensed. Um, didn't experience anything like Alvin Jones, and I wish we would have. But um, the Fed was great. The state was great. The state is basically a shell issue, so once the Fed has it, the state will grant us the license. It was the city of Portland that was the biggest surprise, and it was a really tragic surprise. Cause I grew up here. This is my hometown. And having to fight my own government to create a business – it's just something nobody should have to do. You shouldn't have to fight your own government to create enterprise, to create jobs, to create tourism, to create interest in your town, to make something that's cool and unique. And that that, that was that was a little bit soul crushing and heartbreaking. Well, you you have quite a bit of history with the Oregon Distillers Guild. Have they as an organization done anything to try and push back? That is n- no. And and there's a couple of really good reasons for that. One, the Oregon Distillers Guild is really about re- representing uh, Oregon distillers, and one of the ideas was promotional. The other, the other idea was legislative, and legislatively focusing on a city like Portland serves the needs of some of the members, but it, it, it it's, 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 is. I don't think it's a legitimate use of resources when you think that somebody from Eugene or or uh, Hood River or Albany or Ashland is also paying dues and to take on one city is, is not the role of a state distillers organization. And the other thing that's really challenging, there have been so many different issues and different problems. You know, what, what one person's had to deal with was very different than my experience having to deal with them. And the next person after me has had a very different experience to deal with. So it's not, I don't think an anti distilling thing. It's, it's an ignorance in terms of, of the, 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 the people that permit, and an apathy of the people that permit. I, I know they told one – I think I said this already, but they told one person, bear with us. This is new. We're still trying to figure it out. Okay, if you're telling somebody that in 2015, Clear Creek's been distilling in the city of Portland since the 80s. This isn't new. You should have had this figured out. That's not an excuse. That's not. That's not legit. I don't. I, I hope it's unique to Portland, but I really don't think it is. I mean, you always have to deal with the permitting and the bureaucracy of people in whatever city and town you're in, and there are people that genuinely don't care. They don't care about your business. They don't care if 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 they take fifteen or twenty thousand dollars from you before you can even turn turn a dime, and they they don't care if you're being safe. It's just these are the permits. So, did you have to stop distilling at Bull Run while you were building out your current facility? No, no, um, no, not at all. Bull, Bull Run, Bull Run, and I still have a very, very good relationship. In fact, Lee's done some distillation at my place, which is an ironic twist of fate. No, we're still very good friends. There's a joke. Uh, there's a joke, uh, kind of a running joke, where Lee picks up a piece of mail and tells the uh, people in the office he has to go to the post office. 
but he comes over to our place and uh, we pop a bottle of wine. Uh, it's not good for my production or productivity, but uh, it's really still nice to have a glass of wine with Lee. We 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 didn't have a hard out or or a uh, we need to uh, be done here. Uh, Bull Run, Bull Run gave us really one of the most amazing opportunities, and and, and I can never ever express how, how how much gratitude and how grateful I am for it. It's literally why I think our gin is so so has done so well. Uh, is because we, we, we were able to have enough time to get our recipe to do exactly what we want. And then we were able to make a lot of it in relatively little time uh, and, and get it out there and spend the rest of time building brand. And, and that, that's one of the things that you were talking about is um, in one of the questions before our uh, bartender friend from across the street, Adam, uh, chimed in. Um, that we we did duplicate the still at Bull Run and and Bull Run built very large whiskey stills for the sake of production, and what we realized very early on was twofold: one, we don't want to change the flavor profile when we come over here, and two, we want to be able to make a lot of product with very little production input because that's going to keep our prices down. It's going to keep our our, our product value uh, where we need it to be. And it's going to be able to make sure that we can meet demand. So we're 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 using an eight hundred gallon pot, distilling one and a half to two times a month, which is gorgeous. That is gorgeous. What's your distribution at now? How many states? So at this point, we're in nine states, which is the same nine states we've been in uh, for the last three years, and we're not trying to add more states. I'm actually aggressively turning down uh, offers for other states. Uh, of course, the uh, great state of Tennessee uh, yeah. and. Um, which I know we've been very kind. Uh, New York, to you. Massachusetts. Your wonderful distributor here. <laughs> that's that's mainly uh, just Colton <laughs> buying your product. Uh, no, t- Nashville is, is 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 easily probably one of my favorite cities in the entire country. I absolutely love Nashville. Unfortunately, uh, we need to be doing a little bit better there, but we'll get into. Well, we're not going to get into that. Uh, but Nashville has always been very, very kind. It's, it, it's one of my favorite places to visit. And at one point somebody said, if you could go anywhere on vacation for a week as a like, wait, selling gin and, and, and like a place that can work. No, no, just vacation. I was in Nashville. It's such a great town. But anyway, uh, Nashville, uh, Indiana. How's uh, Indiana? I know you had some problems there. Have you been able to kind of get that back on track or is that one you've had to pair back? Indiana has been a mixed bag and I don't, I don't want to like, like throw too much out there at this point. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know who's listening, but Indiana, I think, started out as a great state. Uh, you guys all know um, um, Logan Hunter. Yep. He was a uh, big, big fan early on. And in fact, Logan's bar, uh, Alchemy, unfortunately, had a fire. But there there were many points where Logan's bar in, in, in Bloomington, Indiana, was our single best account nationally. Uh, so Indiana always has a soft spot in my heart, especially doing the uh, spirits judging with you, Brian and Colton, um, and starlight. Indiana has always got a soft spot in my heart and, and, uh, Indianapolis, it's not a town I would seek out and go to on my own, but when I'm there, I know where to go. I know where the great restaurants and bars are. I know people there at this point. It's a place I genuinely enjoy being, and there's never a point where I think, oh, fuck, I have to go to Indiana. Uh, every time I go to Indiana, I'm really excited about it, which is one of my – maybe maybe my only sore spot with our new distributor in Indiana is I want to be there more, and it's, it's hard for me to actually get market time in that state. Right. But they've also done a really great job getting us out there to the point where last time I was in Indy, every place I went to that I, I've always wanted to be in, they had the gin, so – so, so it's 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 a mixed bag, and then of course uh, the West Coast: Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, Nevada. So nine states at this point. That's great. How, have you? How are you doing in terms of managing your time? Because I mean, you're a small operation. It's you. It's Eric. I don't know what other staff or support people you have, but I mean, I know you do a lot of the marketing, a lot of the branding. You do a lot of the travel. Nobody here has staff. That was a rumor. <laughs> um, well, okay. So every time you're away from the still, that minimizes your ability to produce and do all the work inside the actual distillery itself. How have you found a balance in that? Is that is that still tough, or have you guys figured out kind of the recipe for that? You know what's crazy is it was never tough. Uh, we, like I said, we have an 800 gallon pot still. It's it, it's very similar to what we we're using at Bull Run. Uh, so I think 2016 was the year that we distilled 12 times, and we distilled once a month in production. 
that made things really, really nice and easy. This year, I think uh, we're about 18 distillations into it. So so we're, we're growing and we're really easily managing our growth. We don't have to add new capital. We don't have to add new equipment. We don't have to like look for a bigger space as we grow. Right now, we're probably operating about uh, 10 to 15% of capacity. That's fantastic. And, and so when I was here before Eric was here full time, uh, Eric did uh, have a job with the uh, biggest law firm in the country, he likes to say. <laughs> Eric was working full time after I lost my job at Wildwood, and I was the one that jumped in full time first. And the first summer was really rewriting the business plan, doing all the market research, doing all the financials uh, to court an investor to get somebody to basically trick somebody into giving us money enough money to make this work. Once we had that in pocket and we signed the lease on the building, which was later that year, later in 2014, it took, like I said, 13 months to get the build out done. And I was here 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, a lot of evenings, Eric would come by and we'd do a lot of our uh, like drywall and, and, and easy plumbing stuff ourselves. So we did as much as, as, as we could ourselves. And then once we had the place open, I was basically running the taste room five days a week and then doing production and uh, admin stuff for the rest of the week while Eric still had his day job. So we were trying to basically find the cash flow. My job at that point was trying trying to build the cash flow to the point where we can pay Eric full time and he can like leave his day job. And that happened, um, that happened uh, late 2017. So now Eric's here full time. We've been able to hire somebody to work the taste room, a few people actually. Uh, but production-wise, we don't have to have a giant team of people because literally we're distilling like like one and a half, maybe twice a month, and that's about it, which is really kind of nice because I can still travel, and I'm on the road probably 20, 25 weeks a year. Uh, and then when I'm not traveling, I can spend my time away from the distillery. I, c- I can come in and do production when it needs to be done and I can spend the rest of the time kind of making connections here in Portland. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, it's really, I think the ideal situation, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, having huge production capacity is just, it's so advantageous for so many reasons that it's allowed us to do so, so many things right and so many things well. From consistency, obviously, the fewer times you do anything, uh, the more consistent it's going to be. From being able to like focus our energy on brand building, because that's really the business we're in. You know, we're, we happen to make booze, but we're, we're, we're building a brand. That's, that's the whole point. If you don't look at this as building a brand, you're never going to succeed. It's going to be a garage operation forever. So we've, 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 we've been able to get out focus on other markets, focus on our home market. And, and Eric being here full time now has been really great because he can be here to make sure things are running smoothly here while I'm actually running around Portland trying to make connections. That's Adam and, uh, Adam and his friend that were here earlier. They're the bartenders from across the street and I can get over there and uh, say hi and say, Hey, come back to the distillery. If you want to have a few drinks, they had a few more than I planned, but, uh, really, you know, they're not, you know, they're great people, and uh, we've had a lot of fun conversations, a few awkward ones, but um, I, I, yeah, I wasn't expecting to be. So you're building a you're building a brand, right? And you're you're adamant about that, and this is very near and dear to you. Would you ever sell said brand to a constellation or something like that? You know, we've gotten some incredible <laughs> phone calls from <laughs> some drink. crazy people, <laughs> and people that have Eric and I have talked about this at length and, and, and many, many drunken evenings of what's, what's this. And every, you know, the, the question that always comes up is what's your end game? What's your exit strategy? And I have a three-year-old girl at home. She's helped me put botanicals in the stool already. Eric's got a uh, five-year-old uh, boy at home. If I'm honest, if I can do something I love for the rest of my days and, and, and we can hand it off to our kids as a family business, a family legacy, that's option one. Uh, that's, that's really how I see it. I, I love what I do. I'm in this position where I actually get to come to work at a distillery. And no matter how much shit there is, there, no, no matter how many things are wrong, no matter how many fires I have to put out, no matter how long the day is, I love being here. And, and, and I, 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 don't, I don't love leaving here. 
I, I mean, I've, I've made my own happy place. And I think so few people actually get to actually have that experience. And it's, it's an amazing and special thing. And I love being here. Where, where, where I, 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 I drag ass leaving here. Where most people drag ass getting to work, I drag ass leaving here. Because I really enjoy the space that we've built. It, it feels good. It's a fun place to be. We've got a bunch of Nerf guns everywhere and radio-controlled cars and helicopters. And we, just, we act like a bunch of children. But, you know, at the end of the day, we take care of things. We, we make good product. Uh, we work hard to sell it. We work hard to build the brand. We work hard to get the uh, message out. And I enjoy it. I enjoy every second of it. And I, I, I could do this forever. And if this is my option, I don't ever want to retire. I want to keep doing it. If, if I can hand it off to our kids, that would be the coolest thing in the world. Uh, that was way too sweet and sincere for this podcast. Uh, could you dial that back? It, no, it's it, it, that, that's actually true. I mean, it really is. It, we've also we've also had the conversation about you know what what if there are so many zeros on the check that you can't count them, mm-hmm. and we're we're nowhere near that right now. But we're on a very good trajectory as far as the business goes, and <clears throat> we're getting phone calls from people whose radars we shouldn't even be on. Let's be honest. There's no reason companies that can throw around billions of dollars should be cold calling us, and they are. And, you know, we've also said, hey, there might be some point where it's so many, so many zeros that, hey, we, uh, we can always start <laughs> another one. But right. I was going to say, if you did make that exit strategy, is starting the next next distillery the, the plan after that? There isn't a plan after that. There really isn't. But, but that's not the plan. That's the thing. So so we're not trying to build this up to sell it. We're really not. And I think that's part of what what why we're doing well is because we don't have this feeling of, of, of trying to force a brand. Right. The, the brand we're selling and building is us, and it really is. That, that's the reason I'm the one that travels to all these markets. Er, Eric does Southern California and, and, and uh, Northern Nevada, uh, but we're not paying reps. We're not, we're not hiring people. It, it, that's the reason we're doing this ourselves is because it's us. The brand is yeah. us, and while we are still building the brand, you, I mean, you have to think of any business as building a brand. Otherwise, it's a hobby. But we're not thinking about it in terms of let's build a brand we can spin off and sell. Let's be like all polished, gray goosey, uh, whatever. The the idea isn't to spin it off and get rid of it. The idea is really to do something we love. And honestly, I I, I love the aspect of building the brand. The travel's grueling. It's exhausting. It, 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 it it's it's hard on the family, but. I love getting into places. I love seeing places that I've been to order it. And I love having personal relationships with the people that I, I see and the people that are selling my gin all over the country. And that's that's part of what I love about this business and this industry. Yeah, I like that. We share the same sentiment. I know Colton loves what he does and I love what I do. Shit, Brian, I guess you love what you do, right? But uh, what what is it yeah. you do? <laughs> I mean, I fucking hate it. I talk to there's you. Just, it's all like the something time. like I can't even. My I can't even grueling. imagine doing anything else. This is like what I do, right? Like you, you can't even imagine. So I, I totally, I love hearing that. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. It, it's, it's. I love every second of what I do. I love waking up thinking about what, what, what has to happen. I love thinking about making gin, making sure that we're consistent, making sure the quality's there. I mean, I'm, I'm doing production right now and proofing while we're talking about this. <laughs> uh, that I, I love it. I, lo- I love every second of it. I mean, I love going out. I love spending time in restaurants and bars, like meeting bartenders, getting to know people, and doing that all over the country. It, it's 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 so much fun. I love, I love being able to say like I've been to this place in in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and I know the bartender here, and they've got my gin, and this is a great place around the corner from it. And, yeah, it's such a cool thing. It's such a cool thing to say. Uh, yeah, we're on the drinks list at PDT or Spotted Pig has it. It's it's a cool cool thing to create something that people like to work with and play with and use to be creative. Yeah, one of the reasons why it's great to talk to you is because you know we've talked about over the last you know last few episodes about how one of the things with this industry is it started really on this curve of passion. You know, everyone was you know this constant trajectory of passion, excitement, people kind of getting in over their heads in some cases, because it was more passion than business sense. But I think you're a great example that those those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can live this business as a passion project, but plan ahead and, and know that this is, like you said, building a brand, it's building a business. You know, you can't just do it because it's fun. You can live the life and enjoy every moment of it, but it has to be part of building a business. And you're a, kind of a fantastic example of that. Well, 
Yes and no. Uh, we did run the first distillery into the ground entirely, and I think the first one was very much a passion project. I think the first distillery is a very good example of what you're referring to. We thought, okay, yeah, we can make vodka that doesn't suck. I've been bartending for 15 years, and vodka sucks. We can make a vodka that doesn't suck. Let's use single-origin raspberry blossom honey, and let's use local Syrah and local Chardonnay and local Pinot Gris, and we'll make these beautiful vodkas. And, and if, if somebody would pay 50 or, or 30 bucks for Grey Goose, they'll pay 50 bucks for our shit because we got a better story. And, and we ran into the ground so fucking fast because we weren't thinking about building the brand, and we also weren't thinking about the, the, the basics of business, the fundamentals of business, the, the cost of goods sold, the, the, the labor, the, uh, the production time, the margins. We made a passion product I'm still super proud of. I was actually pouring some Martin Ryan vodka, uh, which, Brian, if you'd ever come and get your ass down here. Uh, nope. I yeah. don't go to Portland anymore. Yeah, you, you could actually have Martin Ryan vodka. I'm going to do that. That's that's the thing I was waiting for. That's the line of seduction. <laughs> you know what? Well, we, we might even do Apia. We might even open an Apia. <gasps> okay, uh, no, so we had these two gorgeous vodkas that, that, that were stunning and, and, and beautifully distilled with the with a sense of, of, of place because that's, that, that, that was what I was in, you know, instilled with with the restaurant I was working at was sense of place, cooking from the source. That was Corey Schreiber's tagline for his cookbook. It, it's about knowing where you come from and that's what we wanted to do with vodka which just it didn't exist vodka is just it's generic ngs so it didn't go well at all it didn't go well at all and we learned a lot of lessons from it and i think those really influenced how we're doing everything now we're not trying to do two different products at once we're not trying to do a whole range of spirits our idea was it took us four years to get the gin recipe right let's stick with one really proper and really good gin and focus on building one brand and that's that's exactly what we've done because we made those mistakes the first time around. And I don't think a lot of people have a second opportunity. A lot of people, I think, get into this right. thinking, oh, distilling is sexy. Um, I don't want to sit in a fluorescent look cubicle all day. And what they don't bring to the table is a palate and experience. And I think, fortunately, I've been bartending for my entire adult life and working in some of the best kitchens in Portland, which is a city known for amazing food that I got to work with some amazing chefs that, that really like, got, I got to develop a palate. And, and I think that if, if anybody says, what's your most important asset, it's, it's my palate because that influenced how the gin came out and how I make sure the gin is consistent and the highest quality possible. And that's what I think so many people don't bring to the table. They bring the passion, but they don't understand running the business and they don't understand the building of the brand and they don't understand necessarily the palate. And, I think we're kind of fortunate to have a little bit of 2020 hindsight coming out of the first catastrophe uh-huh. that, that, that we ran into the ground. But at the same time, also coming from a place where I'm, I, I come from a culinary background and I come from the service industry background where, where as a bartender, I can also see how there's this void that's not being satisfied with current craft distilleries. I can bring something to the table, and that's really what Aria was about, was making this classic London dry style gin that no other small distiller was doing at the time and doing it well. So what's next? What's next, Ryan? <laughs> yeah. What's next? Well, I just finished off the bottle of rye I was drinking. So <laughs> Wait, wait uh, what rye were you drinking? <laughs> we always like to talk about what we were drinking. Uh, it was uh, Bull Run's uh, Straight Rye Whiskey, which is an MGP uh, derivative, but uh, Bull Run is our friendly distiller to the uh, south. They're literally a block and a half away from us. And then Clear uh, Creek's right up the so, street yeah, from you, right? a little bit of that. The Down the street. Yeah, yes. big difference. <laughs> I'll remember that next time. I'm our friendly neighbors to the south, <laughs> not to the north. Uh, <laughs> All right, so more traveling, right? So you said 18, dis- 18 production days. Is uh, 2019 like 24 production days? Like what kind of arc are you looking for on growth or anything like that? Oh, the growth would be like for 2019, like a thousand production <laughs> days. It would be so cool if we could get that. Because uh, then I could retire uh, and drive my Aston Martin into the bay every time I go to the sailboat. We're, we, we are at this point. Uh, which is, I think it's, it's not a bad point to be at, uh, beginning our seventh year here. We just finished year six, uh, where our growth is not as 50% year over year as it has been. And that's not a bad thing that that's to be expected. So at this point, what I'm really looking for is, 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 is to really 
it's the same reason I've been out of state so much is because we're trying to build connections out of state. Really, we're still focusing on we're still focusing on on the one product. We're not trying to add a whole bunch of shit to the make. I've got this I've got this kind of double agenda where Eric has really taken on the role of being here and running the distillery. I am either on the road trying to make sure that our markets are are, are, are so the select states that we're in we're doing well in, and I'm really trying to build depth and and, and penetration in the markets we're at. As opposed to trying to like add new states, we're, we're no new states. We really want to do well in 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 Mass and New York and in and Tennessee and Indiana uh, before we try to add Illinois or Texas. We don't want to spread ourselves too thin. Really, kind of taking a look back into Portland and finding the places that don't still have us yet, and using our momentum in Oregon to kind of get ourselves in there. And one of the, one of one of my biggest foci for uh, seventeen was some major major corporate accounts that we have here, and being able to go and say, "Hey, we're the best selling locally distilled spirit in Oregon. There's no reason you shouldn't have us." is really kind of a cool thing. And so I've been using that leverage to get into basically some big corporate accounts, some kind of hotel. Do you uh, think there's any truth? So like we talked about Death's Door on a previous podcast. And one of the points that I don't know, Brian or Colton brought up, but they said, uh, you know, they were concerned like, Hey, we didn't control our backyard. So what you're saying is like, Hey man, I want to know how get a really deep roots in Portland and where you are. Do you think that's super important to do? Or do you think that's, it's as important to do it in other markets just as much as your backyard? Looking back on things, we, we got it. So, so this is an interesting question. And, so one of the things one of the things we thought early on was California, New York, big big major market, Chicago, and what we learned very what we learned very quickly and very early on was those markets are so hotly contested, they're so fought for, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're in New York or California because there are a billion billion brands spending so much fucking money on that that you're going to be lost in the shuffle unless you really, really bring something crucial to the table. And coming back into it, yes, yes, absolutely own your own market first. I mean, that's if, if you can't do it in your own state, there, there, there's nothing you can say. If you're, if you're the number like 650th selling spirit in Minnesota, why the fuck would anybody in Arizona give a shit about you? Whereas I can go in and say, we're the best selling spirit distilled in Oregon. And Oregon's a spirit known for uh, liquor. Wow, that that seems a little on un- that 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 might be some street cred that can uh, get us some playing. That in a seems place a like little California. unfair. I, I have to compete with Jack Daniels and George Dickel. I don't think <laughs> I'm ever going to be the number one selling spirit in Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So not if, so, not okay, if you keep I, thinking I, yeah, like that, Colton. Uh, but, but, yeah. But then you- yeah. Not a so small time. Yeah. Seriously, that <laughs> is some pessimism that we will not allow on this podcast. Get your shit together. At the same time, it, it, it's again, it's about branding, brand building, and messaging. It's like, okay, we're Tennessee's first craft distillery, or we're Tennessee's most innovative craft distillery, or Tennessee's most awarded craft distillery. There's so many things you can go to that it, it's it's how do you articulate your brand and, and 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 get people into what you want it to be. And it doesn't have to be Oregon's number one selling distilled spirit. You're, yeah, in a place like Tennessee, you're never going to get that. So. You look for something that resonates with the consumer in the state that you're in. And Kentucky might be also <laughs> rather difficult uh, in that uh, regard. But no matter where you are, there, there's something you can do. And, I mean, Corsair is not exactly doing a shitty job at promoting themselves and, 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 and building national attention. I mean, Corsair is, is, is sort of – you guys are everywhere. You guys are really well-known. You've done a great job building the brand. And I think you guys have built your brand on innovation. Not we really volume. like to get gin producers to talk us up. Who else made a millet that's how we, or a, that's how we or a quinoa or, or a chinois? <laughs> and I just made up that grain. It's not even a real grain, but you guys probably are Corsairs doing it right. Corsairs used it. Colton's actually like got they it. They actually have their own crop. made it up yeah. five seconds ago. That's how it <laughs> is. Yeah, you guys have made a custom <laughs> mill for it. I do love the it's, irony of having a brand that's hyper-focused on a single skew talking to another distillery that is known for yeah, like having 74. more skews than I have children, which is a lot. <laughs> 74 skews at least. 
course there has more skews than there are uh, observable <laughs> galaxies in the uh, Hubble field. Uh, this is not incorrect. And again, again, I will never say we've done the right thing and they're doing the wrong thing. There's different ways to go about things. And I think I don't think Corsair would be on the map had they not done every fucking grain and cross-pollinated grain and genetically modified and genetically engineered grain and, and, and in grain that doesn't exist. <laughs> they've done everything possible. And and that's what it is. Like they, they've built their name on innovation and creativity and just pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries. You know, if you're doing whiskey in whiskey country, yeah, you're going to have to. What I did with Aria was a classic London Dry because all the distilleries here were doing innovative, creative, non-traditional things, pushing boundaries. And I'm not going to use the negative terminology for another gin distillery in Oregon because I think they're all amazing. It's that they were all pushing boundaries. And we, we stopped and said, well, let's just step back and do a traditional London Dry. Whereas you know, coming out of Tennessee or Kentucky or that general region, everyone's very – structured and how things are made and corsair comes along as a breath of fresh air they did what nobody else was doing in the same way that i did what nobody else was doing so we've done the same thing but in very very fundamentally different ways and it's basically identifying what your neighbors aren't doing right now and that's how you come into the market by not doing what everyone else is doing we didn't do a new western new american modern gin because that's what everybody else was doing corsair didn't make a sour mash tennessee whiskey because that's what was expected they eventually they made didn't a make a bourbon just throw that out there. because that's what was expected i know it's delicious <laughs> by the way uh for the record i love corsair uh colton's a good friend of mine so uh just need to throw that so out we've there. lost listeners. all right guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> we lost listeners as soon as we start talking about corsair <laughs> Colton oh, yeah. logged off a while ago. Yeah. All right, guys. Do you have any final questions before we get into the final thoughts? Yeah. I can't do a grappler like Zeno. Sorry. Thank you. Well, Ryan, so was, was London Dry what you drank at the bar? Was that your go-to kind of? At, at, wait, at what bar? You're going to have to be more specific, Colton. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, wait, wait, which bar? We went to a lot of bars that night. When you were ordering, <laughs> when you ordered a gin at a bar, before you had a distillery, did you lean towards London dries or did you want to go? No, no. And, and this is kind of a funny thing. Um, I've always liked gin. I've always liked gin and tonics and gin martinis. Um, beef eater was something that I had very early in my bartending career written off as grandma's brand of mass produced industrial, uh, shit gin. And it wasn't until I started, uh, working on gin recipes and I tasted beef eater blind that I realized, holy shit, this is, this is really good. This isn't garbage. This is really well balanced. It's exquisitely made. The flavors are there. And that was a revelation because I'd always kind of analogated the brewing industry and the distilled spirits industry as kind of that craft brewing, craft distilling thing. And it's really, really not the same because the big guys aren't making garbage. I mean, Maker's Mark is excellent whiskey. So is Buffalo Trace. So you can't sit here and say, oh, I make Aria and I only make 100 gallons a year or whatever it is. That's not an argument to say that it's better than Beefeater or Tanqueray or Bombay. What I really, really realized was we have to do everything we can to make sure that we are as good. But coming back to your question, I, 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 I've probably been meandering a lot lately no um i've always liked working with gin as a bartender and one of the things that i always liked working with was london dries and new westerns and aviation was one of my favorite gins as soon as i tasted it because it was so different so wacky so unusual it's like sarsaparilla and mint and and lavender all these things that should never be in gin and they did a beautiful job with it and early in developing aria um before we even had the brand name aria early in the gin development our idea was let's out aviation aviation. Let's be the next crazy wacky gin. Let's push the boundaries. Let's let, let, let let's go even farther than anyone else has taken gin. What weird ingredient can we find? And it really was taking over the cocktail program at Wildwood when I needed my martini to be a local gin, but it had to be a classic London dry gin to make a martini. That's when I realized everybody's trying to do that everybody's trying to throw prickly pears and, and kumquats and lavender stems and watermelon seeds and, and, and whatever, what, what, whatever you can find on, on the side of the road into gin that 
nobody was making this classic linen dry. And it was really, really trying to make our house martini a local gin that I realized no one's making the linen dry. And that's where we totally shifted focus. So as a bartender, yes, I've always loved working with gin, but I've always been a cocktail bartender. And so I've always liked going out and doing a shot and a beer after work or a glass of wine. And I still probably drink more wine or more beer than anything after work just because being around gin all day, it's really nice to just drink out of category. And it's not because I don't like gin. I, I really do like gin as a cocktail ingredient and, and, and a thing to work with. But no, I, <laughs> I, I probably drink more wine and beer. Good to know for our industry. Although right now I'm drinking whiskey. I, hear, I really like Plymouth. Plymouth was the gin <laughs> that really kind of, when you had your beef eater experience, that's what I had with like Plymouth. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I, I will, I will never deny that aviation is the gin that inspired me to make gin, but we wanted to so intentionally be different than aviation that we, Eric and I went out and just bought, every classic English style gin we could get our hands on. And at one point I remember one trip to the liquor store, we spent $750 oh, on gin. Well played. And just gin. Uh, because we bought everything we could. And, and we sat there and tasted it over and over night after night. This is why I don't drink <laughs> gin anymore. Uh, but Plymouth Bombay white label and beef eater uh, definitely stand out as my top three of the classic London dries. And what we wanted with Aria was to absolutely have that same sense of balance, that same sense, the same flavors, the same to be in that same ballpark, to where somebody tastes Aria and they, oh, this is a classic English gin. But it was also crucially important for us that it doesn't taste like any of those three. It does nobody any good if we knock off Beef Eater's flavor profile. No matter how perfectly we get it, that's not good for Beef Eater. It's not good for us. It's not good for the consumer. So what we knew we had to do was create this gin that kind of played in the same ballpark as our favorite gins, Beef Eater, Bombay, and Plymouth, but didn't taste like any of those, but also wasn't so far out of the range that it didn't taste like a classic London dry gin. And I think that's what took three years, it was four years really, four years to develop the recipe, was that really difficult set of parameters where it had to be recognizable as a classic gin, but it also had to be uniquely ours, but it also had to be good. And it turns out that's not an easy thing to do. Have you taken it to English competitions? I know you've done very well on American spirit competitions, but English are obviously uh, snooty about no. their gin. No, and, and, and for us, I, I don't think it makes any sense at this point because... To put it on something that's like a European scale, we're not in that market, so I, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't see the value. Actually, we, we we got the Good Food Award in 2017, which was all about our botanicals being sourced sustainably and non-GMO and fair trade and 96% organic. We retired it from any kind of competitions after that because we had metal gold or better in every judging it's ever been in, and I don't want to sound arrogant but we ran a bloom <laughs> on most of our promotional materials for metals so um we basically said you know what we've made our point uh we're where we need to be no more no more competitions no more medals no more judging it's 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 it's, it's we've made our point it, it's 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 kind of where let we me ask you a, a craft this is more towards the smaller craft producers when we're talking about branding marketing what's the low-hanging fruit for producers to get their name out there what works low cost low investment but the biggest bang for their buck in terms of actually getting their name out there and getting some publicity is it is it competitions is it going to some of these shows is it working through guilds what is it what are what's some of the affordable ways they can market themselves god that's 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 a hard hard question um i will preface this by saying that in the first first three to five years as far as getting our name out there we did absolutely fuck all nothing um <laughs> Having an association with Bull Run was, I think, huge. And then I've also been in the service industry in Portland for 17 years. So I, I knew everybody behind every bar. And I think that was really, really huge because, you know, everybody in the industry talks. Bartenders know who's doing what. 
and oh, Ryan Jin's coming out. Yeah, I'm getting it. So I, I, I think we, we, we didn't have to put a lot of targeted effort into Portland. We, we didn't. We didn't. Because because the first three years when I, we were still at Bull Run, I was also bartending full time and bar managing full time. Right. And, and so Eric had a full time so job too, right? Was, oh yeah. So so getting out there wasn't even an option. So I think what we did was we made a gym where there was definitely a niche for, and we priced it really aggressively because as a bar manager I get liquor cost. And if this is mostly people listening um, who are in the industry. I don't care how good your spirit is. If it's thirty-five or forty dollars, it might be worth every penny. It's never going on a cocktail list. You're never going to get your drink on a drinks menu. And what we did was we priced ours at twenty-two bucks in Portland, uh, to where we went on drinks menus everywhere, and that really helped us get the name out there. It helped bartenders realize here's a local thing that we can actually work yeah. with into our cocktail program. And I think that was huge. So, you know, l- looking at how we've done, I don't think there's any one thing I can pinpoint like like, like what you're asking for. But I think it is understanding that if, if, if you want to be on a drinks menu, you better be less than a dollar an ounce and, 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 and even better less than 90 cents an ounce. Because bar managers have product cost. And that cocktail, you, you better drive a good liquor cost. Otherwise, it's not going on the drink menu. And I understood that as a bar manager going into it. Then having all of my friends that work in the industry bring it in immediately, I think was huge. So if you can make a really good connection in the service industry and, and think like brand ambassador, like having a bartender, a well-respected, not just a bartender, but a well-respected bartender, you know, be your brand advocate. I don't know how to do that exactly because for me it was like I'm the owner of the brand. Uh, but but I don't think that's I don't think there's any amount of money that's ridiculous for that. It is uh, one of those things that when when somebody that's been in this industry for 10, 15 years and knows everybody walks in and says, "Hey, you got to try this new whiskey uh, coming from Jim Bob Distillery." I've heard of them. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, Carrie Carrie is telling me I need to have this. Sure. Just street cred there. Street cred is huge, and and I think we had street cred in, 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 in intrinsically because I came out of the service industry and I was a bartender. How much has being part of a control state affected you? Would you see that as a net gain? Has that been uh, mainly beneficial, or have there been obstacles you've had to overcome there too? We have a very good control state. Uh, the OLCC is very forward-looking, very um, willing to work with us, both in terms of being a distillery and in terms of the bar and restaurant industry and in terms of liquor stores. Looking at my distribution relationships around the country, I think it's been huge. Uh, at the same time, it's been a double-edged sword because the state takes 40%, the liquor store gets 10 of a uh, 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 no, liquor store gets 5% of of product cost the state takes 40% and i get the 50% right. left uh, that math doesn't sound like it makes sense but basically uh, i sell for $12 the liquor store sells it for 24 they mark it up 100% the uh, state gets a uh, 5% the liquor store gets a 5% kickback on it um uh, that's how and it it's works. still cheaper than so, if you go into Washington right. State. <laughs> well, Washington State is a classic example of voters not reading what they voted for and voting in a tragically Brexit. awful system. <laughs> that's but Washington State. Yeah, well, I can't pull it, but they voted for it. Make and Washington that's what they great wanted, again. And that's what they got. Uh, California right. is a great example of a private system that works beautifully. It's cost effective. Uh, prices aren't any more than they are here. So no, you, you can't, you can't sit here and say Washington as a uh, private state is bad. You have to sit here and say, what was the situation that created the badness? And that's what Great. it was, was voter in education. I mean, come on, let's be honest. When can you think of an election that wasn't affected by voters uh, going educated? That was part of it. Name one. There's more to Never it than mind. that. Too. We're not going down politics lane. We're not going down politics no, no, no. lane. I will uh, definitely say Washington had its made its mistakes in terms of how it promoted, advanced its privatization law, and especially what happened with the tax side. It's that's a it whole other part. Wait, Brian, did you Washington vote for State it? Didn't promote and advance it. Costco promoted and advanced it, and 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 Washington State. The only thing Washington State did was bury their heads in the sand. Yeah, Brian. So the state liquor board hid from it 
Yeah, I will take. I'll take no. the bullet on this. No, 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 no. Washington State didn't. Pro- so, so as a state agency, they're not allowed to chime in on a ballot initiative, and they shouldn't be. Uh, any more than the OLCC should be allowed privatization in Oregon. You have to read what the fuck you vote for. And personally, I, 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 OLCC has has been great for us. Uh, it's been a great liquor board to work with. But also, you know, I, I, I don't believe that the state should be retailing consumer goods on any level, whether it's marijuana or tires or apples or... What if I could get all those things at one place, though? It doesn't matter. Then I would be okay with them doing it. Uh, Pirelli, Pokemon. Oh, you're you're just mixing all the words together. I see what you're Walmart? doing here. I'm sorry, I don't know. It's just no, he was question. having a Come stroke, on. and you're being incredibly I'm insensitive. Not. That was that was a bullshit thing I'm, to do. I'm drunk on whiskey. Fuck <laughs> off. Uh, no, 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 no. The state shouldn't be retailing consumer goods on any level. That that that's the end of the day. So I'm not I'm not intrinsically a proponent of the OLCC, but I will say that the OLCC, as a state liquor board to deal with, has been no complaints. Let's let's put it that way: no complaints, other than that. Our state shouldn't be retailing consumer yeah. Okay. And that, that, uh, that's all right. All right. So I got an idea, fellas. Instead, instead of doing final thoughts. All right. Let's do it. Tell, instead, well, yeah, it's already oh, done. Wait, not uh, nobody's wearing pants. Um, <laughs> final thoughts instead of final thoughts. Let's, uh, let me hear a good joke. Like it could be a dad joke, a cheesy joke. I want a joke from each one of you guys. Final jokes. Good God, the only really good joke I know involves pantomime. I don't think that plays well on a podcast, but... Uh, <laughs> no, do it, though. Do it. I, I, I know, that's why I said good God. The only joke I really know. Shit. Let me pull up Reddit. Let me pull up Reddit. I'll tell you what. I'll start it. I have a clean one and a dirty one. Which one do you guys want? Okay. Uh, tell them both yes. at once. What? Yeah. I can't do that. I can barely tell one. All right, I'll go with the dirty one. You guys fucking are terrible. You guys are terrible. Go dirty first. No, 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 no. That that's overplaying. You got to go clean All right, and then dirty. Clean is still a little dirty. Um, what did the earthworm say to the caterpillar? Who'd you have to what? fuck to get that coat? <laughs> yeah, that's right, guys. That's lovely. <laughs> it's, it's a re- it's a real thinker. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I uh, okay, what, what's your dirty okay. one? What's your dirty one? So this guy comes back. He was deployed. He was in the military. Comes back and he goes to a whorehouse. Is that is that the proper term? I don't even know. He goes to that place. He goes to that it place. Uh, it, he goes to a <laughs> sex worker working establishment. He goes to the madam or the, the manager is like I'm dying. I'll I'll take anything you got, anything anything at all. Like whatever you want. And and she says, well, all I have is this duck. And he's like, well, fuck, fuck fucking duck, and I don't want to do that. And she's like, no, 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 it's great. It's like seriously, just do it. And he's so desperate, he's like, all right, I'm gonna fuck this duck. So he goes and he fucks the shit out of this duck. And he comes back. He's like, god damn it, that was the best fucking sex I ever had in my life. So then he comes back the next night. And she's like, he's like, hey, can I get another one of them ducks? And she's like, yeah, but it's going to cost you $10. And he's like, what? It cost me $5 last night. And she says, yeah, well, this one doesn't have AIDS. <laughs> Whoa. Zing. Got you with an AIDS curveball. <laughs> wow. I was not expecting that one. I'll give you mine. mine. I have a dad joke. That and it's sounds. definitely not good, but I love telling it to my kids. I love the way the earth rotates on its axis. It really makes my day. Uh, all right i have i have a dad dad joke that my dad used to tell to me all the time that is really a life lesson that everyone should follow you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose but you can't pick your friend's nose (laughs) i hate how ubiquitous that joke is and it still makes me chuckle yep brian i'm here. here Yeah, I just got to tell you, uh, uh, Colt and I were really drunk uh, one night in Five Corners, and I picked his nose. So your joke is bullshit, Colton. All right. All right. This is the only thing that comes to mind right now because your jokes are so terrible that it inspired me. Uh, True. The old married couple in their bedroom, and Sheila says, Howard, 
close the blinds. The neighbors are going to see me naked. Howard says back, Sheila, if the neighbors see you naked, they're going to close their own goddamn blinds. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> I want to do an entire podcast of Ryan just doing <laughs> accents now. Yes. Ryan, we love you, and thank you so much for joining us on our irreverent, well, ridiculous I'm already, I just refilled my stein of whiskey. 